Hello, welcome, and dobrodošli to Feel Slovenia, the podcast. In each episode, we will explore what I have called the world's best country, meeting locals, traveling, eating, and getting to know the very best of Slovenia. This podcast is written and hosted by me, Dr. Noah Charney, and is brought to you by the Slovenian Tourist Board. In this episode, we turn our focus to food. How to shift the world's eating habits towards the more sustainable was the foundational question of the EU Food Summit 2022 held in Ljubljana, Slovenia. We're all aware of the importance of healthy, sustainable eating for our bodies and for the planet. But it's not always easy to convince ourselves to make a meaningful change in the behaviors we're used to, let alone implementing change across societies worldwide. We might understand that a cow has to eat 100 grams of grain in order to grow by just 5 grams, making beef an unsustainable commodity. But we still want a steak or a burger. Luckily, there are brilliant minds at work on the issue. The key is to introduce new options that are good for the environment and the individual that lead to long-term habits for consumers of all walks of life. We eat hedonistically, meaning for personal pleasure not just to sustain our bodies, but we also think morally. We are concerned about animal welfare and the environment. We also want to do what is healthy for us and easy on our wallets. In order to come up with winning solutions, the EU Food Summit was held in Ljubljana, Slovenia, November 5th through 7th, 2022. Dealing with themes like reduction of food waste, feeding the undernourished, and producing food that is better for the planet long-term, the EU Food Summit brought together international experts to tackle a problem that affects us all and will affect our descendants long into the future. The summit was co-founded by Slovenia's star chef, Anna Roš, the 2017 World Female Chef of the Year, Netflix star, and chef of Hisha Franco, one of the world's 50 best restaurants, and a two-Michelin star holder. Martin Jezerschot is the event organizer for the EU Food Summit and a member of its expert council. His experience in the food and service industries is vast, as general manager of Jezerschot Hospitality, one of Slovenia's most prominent catering, restaurant, and event companies. How did the idea of the EU Food Summit first come about? So a couple of years ago, we've been uh, doing this event called uh, the Gourmet Cup. It was essentially a ski race for chefs, restaurateurs, winemakers, for everyone involved in the restaurant business in Slovenia. And it, it was just a pure fun event. It was, it had nothing to do with any kind of conference, no, no special message or anything. And Anna Roche came to that event. She, she was actually quite good uh, at skiing. I think she even won. And after that event, we kind of started chatting and talking about what we do. We realize that we have similar values, we get along well, and uh, essentially we became friends. And during all those talks, we also started thinking about making an event that is not limited to Slovenia, but is international, that has something to say, has a bigger message, it's not just fun. Yeah, and that's how we started to think think about. We came up with this first idea. Later on, uh, Anna introduced me to Andrea Petrini, 
And then together, or the three of us, we started brainstorming and came up with the idea of the European Food Summit happening once a year in Slovenia and uh, doing everything we do nowadays. One of the interesting elements of the summit was your development of a manifesto called the Common Sensitarian Diet. What is it? So the Common Sensitarian Diet and this manifesto that we've created is currently the most holistic approach to our relationship with food. Uh, we have to understand that to help us take dietary decisions, people invented diets with simple rules. Eat this, do not eat that. Every day we take about 200 food-related decisions. And if we make these decisions better, it could mean healthier life, better relationship with ourselves. It could mean more sustainable uh, decisions for the planet, more sustainable decisions for the society we live in. And uh, all the existing diets have become kind of ideologies. You know, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who, who you are. And the problem is that most of the existing diets limit choices to health-related goals. What diet should I follow to be as healthy as possible or to lose weight or to gain muscle? Uh, there's actually only one diet that I know. It's called planetary diet that takes into account the planetary health as well. But I haven't come across a diet that helps us develop a positive attitude towards food or a diet that tells us to respect the farmer or the chef that made our food. And that is the common sensitarian diet. It's holistic. Uh, so it's a response to a narrow focus diets. The common sensitarian diet is not a diet that restricts us in what we can or cannot eat. It's basically a personal moral commitment and also an appeal for the climate, environmental, social, economical and political changes that are needed uh, to restore the sustainable food systems and to have a better society we live in. Um, so it's a very simple manifesto on a one or two pages that you can find on uh, commonsensitarian.com uh, and where you can learn, you know, what are the best decisions for the planet? What are the, the food decisions that are respectful and responsible towards all people? Good for our well-being, good for our body. And the, the, the common sensitarian diet approach is very inclusive. You know, anyone can be more common sensitarian. You know, if you're a foodie and you're not willing to give up on your delicious steak, you can start being more common sensitarian by replacing that steak from the other side of the world by the local one. You know, if you're a vegan, uh, you can be more common sensitarian by replacing the air transported fruits and vegetables with the local ones. You know, if you're a chef, you can use your creativity and show that sustainable food can be exciting, delicious. Uh, so common sensitarian diet is something that can be used by anyone, but it's very important to understand that all our dietary decisions have certain consequences and making better food decisions is probably the most that an individual can do to live in a, to live more sustainably. What was something key you learned from one of the speakers that surprised you? To me, one of the most interesting speakers and topics this year was Dan Saladino, who was talking about the biodiversity, well, actually about the lack of biodiversity in the, in the modern society, where we 
came to a point where we have only a couple of different types or species of crops or uh, animals that are that exist for the meat production uh, and that we came to the point where we are at a risk because if there's a disease or a virus that can endanger one of these species we can uh, actually run out of type of food for example uh, weed or chicken or pork um, so for example we only have really limited number of chicken breeds and the dnas of these breeds are owned by very limited number of companies uh, and he was talking about how important it is to keep the biodiversity in the food system and uh, he was talking about the dna banks of different uh, food sources and to me it was uh, really something new something i haven't realized before and i really learned a lot from from him bbc radio presenter dan saladino is a host of a weekly show the food program which examines the culture science economics and politics of what we eat his book eating to extinction the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them won several major prizes i caught up with him at the final event of the food summit the experience dinner where we could barely find a quiet corner for a chat. My name is Dan Saladino. I'm a broadcaster. I make radio programs for the BBC, specifically about food and farming. And uh, I've also written a book called Eating to Extinction, The World's Rarest Foods and Why We Need to Save Them. And that gives an indication of my particular interest, which is looking at food traditions and biodiversity and looking at them not as quaint food traditions that might be consigned to history, but actually as something that might be of value for our food futures. I'm curious, when you first heard about the EU Food Summit, what was your thought? Well, my first thought when thinking about the uh, EU Food Summit was that firstly, that I didn't know uh, as much as I should do about Slovenia. Um, and also, I did like the combination of, I guess, the kind of food stories that I'm interested in, which is about um, food culture, the economics, politics, history of food, and at the same time, to be in the company of chefs both from within Slovenia and and without Slovenia so that yeah that mixture of um you know culinary and culture and politics and big questions about the future of food in a setting where i knew i was going to learn a lot so uh, i couldn't say no to the invitation so what were some key takeaways from your talk at the conference I tried to distill an entire book of 400 pages into a 20-minute conversation uh, or a 20-minute talk. And I, I guess what I was trying to set out was that diversity matters, that we have as a, as a species, as, as humans, we've created this ingenious food system uh, in the 20th century, which has fed so many people and produced vast amounts of calories, but it's come at a cost. And one of the costs that I'm trying to identify in the book and also in the talk today was that what I tried to do was distill in a 20-minute um, talk, why does diversity matter? And the diversity that we lost in the 20th century when we really focused on a small number of high-yielding crops is resilience and the ability of the food system to adapt to changing circumstances. So I, I talked about some examples of wheat and some of the ancient varieties that still exist in Turkey. These are wonderful crops that are so ad adapted and perfectly in tune with their environment. 
which has also given them the ability to grow in areas without lots of chemical fertilizers, without lots of addition of, of water as well. And in a sense, that kind of that's a great example of the fact that we've created crops that perform brilliantly and they, they produce huge amounts of food if all of the conditions are perfect. And the conditions are perfect because we've given them lots of chemical fertilizers produced with lots of fossil fuels. We've given them lots of water from irrigation. Um, but that uniformity, the homogenization of food around the world is risky, is my argument. And that's what I was trying to get across today and providing examples of the consequences of uniformity. So fungal diseases really impacting on the one globally traded banana, the Cavendish, whereas there are 1,500 different varieties of bananas, which all have their different genetic characteristics. And, and just finally, on the, the other idea is that culture matters, that if we live in a world in which we're all wearing the same clothes, listening to the same music, and then eating the same food, is that what it means to be human? I, I argue no. That sounds fascinating. So is there a shorthand for what an individual listener can do to improve the situation both for themselves and globally that seems feasible to your average consumer? Yeah, my talk at the summit today was titled Think Like a Hadza. The Hadza are some of the last hunter-gatherers in Africa. We cannot go back to being hunter-gatherers, but at least we can think like the hunter-gatherers who are so in tune with their environment and have a really deep understanding of where their food comes from, that biodiversity, that nature, that the planet is what provides us with food. And I think we could all make a contribution by thinking a little bit more like a Hadza. That was my argument. But what, what, what I also mean by that is that we should all be in our part of the world, our locality, our region, wherever we are, in, in whatever particular part of Slovenia, or in my case, the UK, and, and maybe investigate, interrogate the diversity that still exists. It could be some varieties of peppers or a type of cheese or a breed of animal. Start to learn about what still exists that only exists in that part of the world and maybe become in the words of slow food, a co-producer, which means not just a passive consumer where you're going into a supermarket and just filling a basket, but actually an active participant in the food system. And we can do that now because we have this amazing technology. We, we carry it around most of the time. It's our phones. You know, we can make these direct connections, not only with uh, farmers or growers or other producers, but also with a network of people who are like-minded, who want to save, you know, an apple variety, for example. Uh, you know, or, or maybe, you know, help that dairy farmer to, to save that endangered cheese. So we should all become co-producers in some small way. Last question for you. What have you liked particularly about Slovenia, either what you've seen or what you've heard about it and have yet to see? Well, the, some of the history I've learned about Slovenia is fascinating in that it was part of this Amber Road, that it's been described to me as that, and it's it's a gateway between, uh, you know, I guess what I would describe as as southern and western Europe, and uh, you know, and further to the east into into different environments, cultures, languages, and so on. So it, I, I've I've way understanding that Slovenia has a special place in history and geography uh, as a as a as a gateway place in in which different ideas, different um, foods, different skills and knowledges came and went and some stayed. And so there's a, there's a huge amount of food diversity that I've experienced and I've been so impressed with the quality of, for example, the salamis I've eaten and the wines I've been drinking as well. And this 
sense that the connection between you know wh- whether it's wine or an indigenous type of pig, which I went even Brian which I went even <laughs> yeah, which I would not which I would not even dare to try and pronounce the name of that actually you know that there's appreciation of this heritage and Slovenia hasn't been on the same journey as many other parts of Europe in which that's been lost and neglected or forgotten and I think that puts Slovenia in a very special place where it still is close to its traditions and yet it's got these amazing chefs and winemakers and forward-thinking young food producers as well. That's a brilliant combination. Fresh from their talks at the summit, I chatted with Marlene Onvisen and Tillen Traunik. Marlene works at Wageningen University in the Netherlands as an expert leader on consumer science and behavior. Her background in social psychology makes her an ideal strategist for how to encourage the world to eat more healthfully. Tillen Traunik is a Slovenian entrepreneur and food scientist who co-founded Juicy Marbles, a plant-based meat company. So Marlene, with the idea that you studied social psychology, I think that's fascinating because you can apply that to trying to convince consumers to eat in a more sustainable, healthy way. What are some of the ways that you apply social psychology to trying to shift the way the market perceives healthy eating? One of the main problems at the moment is that consumers are, on the one hand, developing intentions to become a more healthy or sustainable person, though, on the other hand, act in a different way. So there's a gap between intentions and behavior. And we are trying to find interventions and ways to support closing that gap. And for example, what we did was an experiment in which we uh, activated values of consumers, which is a very nice experiment because it's so elegant and simple. In a zoo, uh, in the canteen, in a zoo, we just hang some posters with the question, do you value animal welfare? And we saw that that doubled the amount of vegetarian burgers sold. Wow, that's fascinating. So sometimes just a little reminder at the right time, just before someone's ordering or buying a product goes a long way. That's exactly the point. So at the moment of purchase, you uh, kind of trigger the values which are already present. And that's especially for a specific group working very well. Now, you talk about moralistic values and hedonistic. Tell me about the difference and how you appeal to those different sides of the consumer. Yes. Yes, that's a very interesting theory that uh, you have all kinds of different values within you that are activated at different moments in time. So you have four values. uh, The hedonic value, which is about taste and pleasure at this moment. So think about chocolate and tasty food at this moment. Uh, the gain value, which is more about affordable food and improving your well-being. And we have also moral values, which is about animal welfare, taking care of each other, and social values. And that's more about uh, thinking about what other people think is important and what other people are doing. And what our research shows, which is intriguing, is that uh, these sustainability values are obviously related to sustainable behavior. So uh, meat reduction, uh, eating smaller portions of meat is related to sustainable values. Though the food environment is triggering these gain values and hedonic values. So there's a gap on this moment uh, on the food environment triggering other values than the sustainability values. And it really is showing that that's a promising route to think together how we can change the food environment so that it also triggers these values at at the right moment, like our experiment. I'm curious whether there's a universal approach for getting human beings 
to eat in a better, more sustainable way? Or does it vary depending on the socioeconomic group and cultural background, how you have to pitch to them? Um, that's a very good question. That's also a bit where science is at the moment. So it's more reflecting on, uh, and I think it's, it's very topical to always have a look on who is your consumer, who's your target group, and what are the problems at hand. So one, there's no silver bullet. These are big problems asking for big changes. So I think it's like having the right solutions for the right target groups at the right moment. Okay. Keelan, you have this great product. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So it's uh, we currently have two products. One we call a loin and one we call a thick cut filet. They're uh, rough imitations of the actual filet mignon muscle uh, and, and steak and meat cut. Uh, it's made out of soy and sunflower with our patent pending technology that we call jokingly, um, Mitomatic 9000. In, in reality, it's basically a process of, uh, what we call 3D tissue assembly. So we, we create the lean tissue and the fat separately and then assemble them into a final product, resulting in a very marbled as the real thing cut of meat that you can actually then cut and use either as a filet mignon. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on your dish, or you can slice it, dice it. it, it it's a highly flexible and versatile product. In terms of how you approach marketing and pitching to consumers, what was your strategy that you found such success with initially? So initially, we kind of latched uh, on the, the fact that we were the first plant-based filet mignon on the market. That was more of a PR stunt, but it did prove that uh, people are actually then setting their expectations are very, very high and very specifically. And even though they like the experience, they would report uh, being slightly dissatisfied in meeting the meeting the expectations because it was not the thing. So we kind of steered away from from that to using more opaque names, um, which still hint on the direction, but are not one to one replicas. That was the first thing. The second thing we we noticed is that. We were never about greenwashing and, you know, you know, green and brown packaging and saving the planet and yada, yada, yada. But we had a strong, uh, let's call it political agenda when it comes to eat this product because of saving the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And we also steer away from that because we noticed that um, consumers are actually not prepared to take on a product just for that. There's a recent German study that says that most of the flexitarians... Um, start describing themselves as flexitarians because of health reasons. So it's the health, it's the gain, the gain frame uh, that's kind of doing it, but that the decision purchases actually make on the hedonic, especially when it comes to meat on the hedonic uh, premise. So we are totally doubling down on the hedonic, just the experience, the, the images, the, the versatility, the recipes. Um, yeah. I have a book about forgery, so I'm interested in people delighted to be tricked and then being upset about being tricked. I'm curious if there's any sense of how much of the audience is wanting to eat something that tastes like steak, but they want to do something healthy. And if it tastes enough like steak, they'll opt for that. How many people just want a new thing? They don't really care what it is. But the idea of essentially trying to fool themselves into eat, thinking they're eating something they already know they like, and that's the positive. Where do you see that those two options trending? So I, I think the reality is somewhere in between those two options. Okay. Um, a lot of feedback we get is from from non-buyers. It's like from 
bypassers who comment or are somehow exposed to our product is that I admire what you're doing, but I always feel like you're trying to pull me into eating something that I, I don't want to eat. I don't want to be confusing your product as meat. And I, I can actually relate with that. Um, and our vision is also to come up with a category. It's, it's not, there's, there's not been a category because all plant-based meats currently are trying to imitate their, uh, meat counterparts. And I think as an industry, we have to strive to make a new category that will then be a viable non-fooling, uh, option for your protein intake. And you'll not have the discussion at dinner, you know, are we having fake or real meat today? But we'll just have this other thing that is, that is there. And, and, and new categories in the food space can be created successfully and quickly. Not the, the best example in terms of what the food item is, but Red Bull is something like that. You know, sure. nobody knew what an energy drink yeah. was 20 years ago or 30, maybe. I don't know. But now everybody knows what a Red Bull and with the benefit of everybody calling the category items Red Bulls, regardless of the brand they are after. So that's kind of the holy grail of our positioning. Your product, Juicy Marbles, is high end and marketed as such. But I'm curious if there's a need to have something as affordable as possible to get large majority of people shifting gears and eating more sustainable plant-based? Or are the sort of people who are wanting to do that less bothered by the cost because they feel like they're investing in themselves and in the environment? I have a bad answer to that. <laughs> okay. Not a bad, like it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pessimistic answer. Okay. Um, yes, we are high-end. We would, we would love to be less high-end or be covering a broader spectrum. Currently, our production is limited, so that's why the sure. cost of it. But eventually, the cost will come down. We're already at price parity with the actual meat piece right. we're trying to replicate, but not with the whole cow. Sure. I think on the lower spectrum, the corporations that are into uh, you know the cheapest kinds of food, so we're talking fast food restaurants. My, my prediction, and I, I mentioned it on one of the slides today, is that in about two years, We'll start paying extra for real meat in those kind of restaurants huh. because the, you know, think of it. If, if we discard everything else, if you say, I don't care about the environment, I don't care about animal welfare, just the fact that a cow has to eat a hundred grams of protein yeah. to grow for five yeah. makes it a very, very, very inefficient machine. Of course. And the corporations will try to replace them. Technology yeah. is there. Products are in a burger close to indistinguishable for most people. So it's just a matter of time where you will start to be paying for. So I think people on the lower economic threshold will eat plant-based more than we actually will or the, the, the average population will. It's also what I want to add to that is so the price is in, in my view, a very limited view to it. So it's, it's always talked about, right? It's always in the middle of the debate so that it's, it's only about prices, but that's also a barrier that consumers often refer to. It's easy to say, why do you, don't you do it? Because it's difficult and price. That's just what they state, but that's not in essence what's going on all the time in their unconscious. If we look at the data, we see that especially emotions and the social environment are far more effective than these perceptions of price and uh, the convenience. So uh, that's the one thing I would like to add to the price discussion. And if consumers value a product, they are very much willing to pay for it. But it's it's about oh, finding the... We are proving this yeah. every day. Yeah. People are willing to pay, you know, yeah. more than the actual meat counterpart for our product. It's just 
the amount of those people yeah. does not that matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing I would love to add is that it's indeed it's a very intriguing uh, discussion about these analogs of meat, right? And at this moment, you target like the flexitarian group if if they are looking for a substitute of meat because it's difficult for them to explore how to consume recipes. Uh, they already know and how to fit like non-meat <laughs> within these recipes. I will so, add one to that. Yeah, it's it's also people who went vegan or plant-based that are. I'm one of them. I mean, I I gave up on the environmental, you know, animal welfare and health aspects of actual meat, but I still like the experience of actual meat. So I'm craving the experience as well. So it's for us half, half of the current consumers are yeah. uh, plant-based people buying the product for themselves also as a promotional material if you wish but the the other half is the flexitarian who is trying to you know not sacrifice the experience too much while making something good for themselves yeah but most of the time the vegetarian and vegan groups are more open for substitutes that look less like meat Uh, so they just want to have a very tasteful experience and sometimes uh that's a type of product that's not specifically uh, mimicking meat but it's very tasteful because that fits the product and it fits the ingredients and the that's texture and i think that's the like the difference in roots and also in the food transition uh, so at the one end you have a group who is in search for a mimicking meat and fitting that in all the things they know and on the other end you have a group that's really in search for high-end, good texture, good tasteful products. So if you were to pick one surprise that came out of your research that would be of interest to the general public, what's the the fun fact that you might want to share? I would choose the fact that we found a strategic ignorance group. I'm now going to check whether you fit into the group. Okay. So we found in recent that, that we have four types of groups. You have indifferent consumers, consumers who are still a bit struggling, Consumers that already change their behavior, so that are these flexitarian uh, consumers, but for example, also organic buyers, and the strategic ignorant group. And I think this group is very interesting because on the one hand, they have these inner values for animal welfare and environmentally friendly behavior. And on the other hand, they do not act upon it and they uh, choose to ignore these values because they just think it's complicated. <laughs> and if you talk about it, they just say, yeah, that's me. I, I do that. That's the, the strategy I use. And I think it's very intriguing because these values are present. And maybe we can find these ways to trigger the values at the right moment, like the experiment in the zoo. Huh, okay. Thielen, what about you? Is there, is there a thing that surprised you in the course of your research and in developing Juicy Marbles that might be of interest to listeners that's a, a surprising fact? Although I had uh, the whole answer to think about this answer, <laughs> the answer was so fascinating. I was just focusing on the answer. So uh, I had to think about it a little bit. But I would say, because um, unlike many other startups in the field, we actually opted uh, to make our own manufacturing facility mm-hmm. and our own manufacturing process because this kind of gives our product a technological and uh, an edge in, in the experience mm-hmm. it can provide. What surprised me and what really kind of painted a lot of the companies uh, well like I, I i gained much more respect for many companies is how complex actual manufacturing is mm. you know coming from a world where i've spent 12 years in it scaling is something that's done with credit cards mm-hmm. and developers right now right and and basically 
you can have a superhero developer and they can basically scale one thing a thousand, a million, 10 million times, right? Uh, in physical goods manufacturing, that's not the case. So I've, I've gained new appreciations uh, on companies such as Tesla mm-hmm. that basically established a new production process from scratch. Because it's one thing to... I was talking to a CEO of a successful Slovenian food company that does a commodity product. And basically the way they go about purchasing new factories is, you know, you, you get a building, which is simple, and then you go to manufacturing equipment providers and they basically spec your line mm-hmm. and sell it to you. We didn't have that luxury because our process is new. So basically the, the creation of this new process and how complex this is, is what surprised them. Huh. It's fascinating. To finish up, maybe, um, Tilan, what do you like about the Slovenian way of life and eating that you think is, is a positive guiding light for um, other countries to look towards? Oh, I, I think uh, Slovenia, ha- because of its unique geographical position, has the variety, but I don't think that's the best, the biggest value. Uh, I think the biggest value is the fact that every other inhabitant in Slovenia has its own garden. Um, and we really highly value homegrown. And it's not, and, and we're super strict when it comes to what is actually homegrown to the point where sometimes, you know, it gets difficult. But like, we still know what a homegrown salad tastes like versus a store bought one. And I think this is something that, in terms of uh, living in Slovenia, is a very high value. Maybe just to finish, I know you didn't get much of a chance to explore Slovenia. You'll come back in the future, I hope. But um, what did you hear about it that you made you think this, this is a good place for a conference like this? So it was indeed a small trip, but I, I was fascinated by the appreciation and the value for food. And I think that's a very deep core value in, in, in all of you, <laughs> uh, which uh, sets the base for uh, developing a sustainable or healthy lifestyle. because. That's where it starts, right? That you really appreciate food and that you're appreciating and valuing that. And I, it's really remarkable if you compare it to other countries, how uh, deep the connection is. And I think it's really uh, worthwhile. Great. Thank you so much for your time, both of you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Some of the rules are simple and logical. Eat a balanced diet of mostly plants, supplemented by grains and a modest amount of quality meat or a high-quality plant-based meat alternative. Not only will you be healthier, but these days you can shift in this direction while still remaining as hedonistic as ever, and future generations will thank you. Vala and thank you for listening to Feel Slovenia, the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Slovenian Tourist Board and was written and presented by Dr. Noah Charney. Please subscribe to get each new episode and tell all of your friends interested in travel and all things Slovenia. If you'd like to learn more, visit slovenia.info. For more information, you're welcome to follow our social media channels, Feel Slovenia on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TripAdvisor.